And indeed, we have something to celebrate. We can sing about the power of the cross only because the tomb is empty. Uh, We can consider the cross with joy and with hope because Jesus lives. The fact is we have something eternally significant to remember and to celebrate today. The fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death, that is a profound truth, a profound reality that will have ongoing benefits and blessings and effects on into eternity. Now, how do we know that to be sure? How do we know that that is true? I'm so glad you asked. This morning, we're going to pray, and then we're going to again turn our attention to John chapter 20, seeing that indeed these things are so. So let's let's pray once again together. Gracious Father, we are so thankful to be able to gather here today to celebrate and to remember the glorious victory of Jesus Christ, that you would send your Son, that you would determine to save and reconcile a sinful and rebellious people unto yourself. We praise your name for that. We glorify you and we pray that today, Father, that we would just not know the facts and the details surrounding the resurrection of Christ, but that we would in a more full and complete way understand their significance, that we would understand what it means for us on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour kind of basis. So, Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, again, all for your glorious praise, and we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please open again to John chapter 20. And this morning, we want to do just that. We want to consider both the facts of the resurrection as John describes them, but then we also want to consider the fruits of the resurrection, the results of the resurrection. And both are so important. It is not enough to just know the facts. If you don't know what the facts mean, if you don't know what the facts produce, if you don't know what they lead to and how they actually matter, matter in real life. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that it is the height of tragedy. It is the pinnacle of tragedy for someone to know the details of Jesus's life, death, burial and resurrection and not know what it all means. And so as a way to instruct our minds, we want to do that. As a way to strengthen our faith, we want to do that as well. As a way to grow us in our love for God and our love for one another. And we certainly want to do that. Let's turn our attention again to John chapter 20, where we, yes, see many facts concerning Jesus' resurrection, but we also get to hear from Jesus himself as he talks to Mary Magdalene. So if you're in John 20, look again at verse 1. It reads as follows. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So if you're taking notes and you want to fill in the blanks, here's your first one. Fact number one that we see in the text is that the stone is 
gone. The giant barrier, the door has been purposefully removed. Mary Magdalene saw that this was so. She saw that it was true. Peter and John would later come to the tomb and they would see that it was true, that it was so, that the tomb is now open. It is available for inspection. Now, how did it come to be so? Who moved the stone? How did this happen? Well, It is not reasonable to suggest, as some have tried, that the fearful disciples did this. It is not reasonable to suggest that the remaining 11, now that Judas has departed, that the remaining 11 hiding, cowardly disciples came and they attacked and overpowered the trained Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. It's not reasonable. It's also not reasonable to suggest that the Jewish religious leaders would move the stone. In fact, they wanted Jesus to stay in the tomb. They wanted the stone to stay put. In fact, it was their idea, according to Matthew 27, that the stone should be sealed, that a guard of soldiers should be placed to make sure that the stone didn't move and that the grave remained undisturbed. And obviously then, it's also not reasonable to suggest that the Roman soldiers would move the stone. It was their job to guard the grave with their life. It was their job to make sure that the stone remained undisturbed. No, the stone is removed. The door is open for one reason, because Jesus lives. Because Jesus is alive. He's no longer in the tomb. God has opened the door to testify to that very reality. Which now brings us to our second fact that John presents to us. Look at verse 2. So she, that's Mary Magdalene. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That is John. That's the apostle John as he writes about himself, the disciple that Jesus love. So Mary goes to Peter and John and she says to them, quote, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Fact number two is this. The tomb is now empty. The tomb is empty. The body is missing. It's gone. It is gone. It is obvious from Mary's words here that she or one of the other ladies who had been with her had got some kind of a glimpse into the tomb and they saw that the body was no longer there. Mary is emphatic as she speaks to Peter and John saying that somebody has taken the body. Somebody has removed this body and we have no idea where it is. Now, over the years... Some who want to say that Jesus did not rise have suggested as an answer to this fact something called the wrong tomb theory. And it goes like this. Mary Magdalene, she made a mistake. It was dark. It was cold. It was early on that first day. She was tired. She was emotional after the loss of, of, of Jesus. And it was, again, it was dark. She was confused. She simply made a mistake. She went to the wrong tomb and reported that it was empty. And that sounds reasonable until we start to ask some other questions. Some other simple questions like, well, did Peter and John also go to the wrong tomb? Did the Jewish leaders go to the wrong tomb when they came to hear about the matter and go to inspect the situation? Were the Roman soldiers guarding the wrong tomb? Or couldn't they have very easily cleared this up? Guys, we're over here! You're at the wrong tomb! 
this one's still sealed. It's fine. No, the wrong tomb theory is very hard to believe. The fact is, they all went to the right tomb. The right tomb where Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, had carried the body of Jesus, had cared for the body of Jesus, placing him in this tomb. The tomb is empty. Everyone can see that it is empty. Why? Again, because God is testifying to the reality that Jesus has, in fact, conquered sin and death. So Mary has gone to get Peter and John. Here's what happens next. Look at verses 3 to 7. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. And this is understandable. They are eager to find out What has happened? What are you talking about, Mary? So they are running together. It says, then the text says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Translation, I, John, run faster than Peter. And I, and, and the whole world will forever know that. And John wins and he gets to the tomb first. And then verse five says, and stooping to look in, what did he see? He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Fact number three. Note this on your outline. The linen wrappings and this face cloth, they were present, but Jesus was absent. They, they were there, but Jesus was not. And these details perhaps help to address one of the most common objections to the resurrection. And it's the claim that Jesus' body was simply stolen. Stolen by the disciples, stolen by the grave robbers, stolen by somebody. And this is why the stone is removed. This is why the tomb is empty, because the body was stolen. But that makes no sense in light of what we see here. If anyone had stolen Jesus' body, it is unthinkable that they would have had the time or would have risked the time to carefully unwrap all of the wrapping surrounded his body and then to take the face cloth and to carefully fold it and to leave it in a separate location. I've never been a grave robber, but I hear it's more of a smash and grab kind of operation. You get in and, and you get out. In addition to this, it would have been virtually impossible to cleanly remove all of the wrappings from Jesus's torn and brutalized body. Remember, the text says earlier in John 19 that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had added about, listen, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and spices to the wrappings to care for the body of Jesus. Listen, these spices and ointments mixed together into the wrappings would have made those wrappings become like a dense, sticky cocoon or shell around the body of Jesus. It is impossible to cleanly uh, unwrap all of this, leaving it in a nice, orderly way. The fact is, this detail is included because God, again, wants us to see that Jesus simply left these grave clothes, that he left that face cloth, not hurriedly, but calmly 
folded up, left in an orderly way, testifying again to his victory over sin and death. Next, look at verses 8 to 10. It says, then the other disciple, again, that's John, the human author of this book, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So fact number four here, we see we must recognize that in John chapter 20, we are reading eyewitness testimony. This is eyewitness testimony. Mary Magdalene saw these things. Peter and John saw these things, that the tomb is open, uh, the grave is empty, the uh, abandoned, carefully preserved grave clothes are there. They saw all these things. So, friends, here's what John is not saying. John is not saying I'm asking you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus because I talked to a guy whose third cousin had a friend whose sister swears that this is true. No, John is saying, I am an eyewitness to these things. I have seen and I know that this is true. And it is so John knows that this is true. John desperately wants you to believe and to know that this is true. John wants you to hear and believe just as he did when he saw the evidence before him. And you might be thinking, okay, that's all well and good. But why does John care so much? Whether I believe in the resurrection. I mean, John, listen, can't you just leave us all alone and let us believe whatever we want to believe about Jesus and, and the resurrection and the crucifixion? Why does it matter? That is an incredibly good question. And to answer it will take us into the second set of verses that we're going to look at for this morning. But before we get to that, jump ahead just a few more verses to John chapter 20, verse 30, where here we see John's entire purpose statement for writing this book, for recording these events. This is why John writes, friend, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. This book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen, John is not indifferent to how you view and understand Jesus Christ. And here at Harbor Shores Church, we are not indifferent to how you view and understand Jesus Christ. We actually believe what John writes here, that there is life to be found in Jesus Christ. That there is joy and forgiveness and forever adoption into the family of God based upon what Jesus Christ has done. And now we turn our attention to this next section of verses where Jesus explains this very thing to Mary Magdalene. To Mary Magdalene. So remember, where's Peter and John? They've left. They've gone back to their homes. Mary is now alone at the tomb. Look at verses 11 to 13. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And 
she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Noted on your outline here, we see the confusion and despair of one who truly loves Jesus. Mary Magdalene is not a hypocrite and she is not a coward. She loves Jesus. She is desperate to find the body of Jesus, which of course means, brothers and sisters, that Mary Magdalene is not yet thinking resurrection. She's not. She's not thinking resurrection. She does not yet know or believe that Jesus is is alive. She is weeping outside the tomb. She is weeping as she stoops to look into the tomb. She is weeping as she speaks with these angels who have now appeared to her. And if Jesus is dead, if Jesus has never risen from the grave, if Jesus was in fact defeated by sin, if he's been swallowed up by death, then Mary's response was and is exactly right. It's exactly right. There is nothing left to do but weep. There is nothing left to do but mourn and to cry and to be in despair. This was the Apostle Paul's very point in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he said that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It is meaningless. It is pointless. Paul writes then, and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is still dead, there is no hope of forgiveness. There is no hope of reconciliation to God. We are dead. We are trapped in our sins. We are totally guilty before a holy, pure, righteous God. If Jesus is dead and he has failed All we have is despair and weeping. That baby understands. You get the despair. I'm just kidding. That shouldn't even pointed that out because we love we love the fact that kids are with us in the worship service and we we truly do. But this, of course, the Mary's response it makes the angel's question so important. Even though the angel's question, I think, if we're being honest, seems a little rude. And insensitive to us. I mean, can you believe what these angels say to Mary in this moment? They say to her in verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? And, and in the Greek, their question sounds even more insensitive. In fact, the emphasis of their question is even a gentle rebuke. Perhaps the way that their question could even better be translated is this. Woman, of all the things that you could be doing, why are you crying? In light of what has happened, why the tears? And of course, the angels, as they know, are not so subtly hinting at the fact that Jesus is alive. This is, in fact, a moment, a cause of great celebration, not for weeping and not for mourning. But I love the fact that in God's providence, the angels ask this question because it gives Mary an opportunity to again express her love and devotion to Christ. Her answer is so good in verse 13. What does she say? She says, they have taken away my Lord. 
and I do not know where they have laid him. Who is Jesus to Mary, my Lord? He is worthy of my devotion. He is worthy of my love. He is worthy of my tears. And Mary is exactly right. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is the God-made flesh. And whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of all of our worship and praise and thanksgiving, everything we could offer to Him. Now, more on that in a moment. But next, we must turn our attention to what happens next in this conversation, to what happens right Right after Mary says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, sounds a lot like the angels question, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now, stop there. Before we finish the text, before we read verse 16, notice again just the love and the devotion that Mary has for Jesus. Notice what Mary is offering to do here. She is offering to take the body of Jesus away and and to care for his body. Mary, who is exhausted. Mary, who has been crying for days. Mary, who has now made multiple trips to and from the tomb. So, Mary, by yourself, you're going to carry away the corpse of a dead man. You're going to carry this body away and care for this matter all by yourself. You say, what's the plan? She probably doesn't have one at this point. All she knows is she must find her Lord. Listen, this is a, this is a situation in which her love clearly exceeds her ability. Her love exceeds her ability. All she knows is that she must find the body of her Lord Jesus Christ. And in that frame of mind, now look at verse 16. This is so good. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And listen, that that name or that title, uh, Rabboni, it's one that Mary would have used Often and regularly when speaking to and with Jesus, it is a term of honor and respect to him. It is a term of humility on on her part. It underscores the fact that she wants to receive from him. She wants to learn from him. She wants to hear him and know him. And, and again, this makes sense after all. Jesus claimed to be what? The way and the truth and the life. Mary is exactly right. This is the one that we need to receive from. This is the one that we need to hear. So note this on your outline here. Number two, we see utter despair turned into joy-filled excitement and worship in the presence of Jesus. And again, friends, remember that when this conversation began, Mary was not thinking resurrection. 
She was not thinking resurrection. Even after seeing the empty tomb, even after talking with the angels, Mary still believed that Jesus was dead. She thought that Jesus was perhaps the gardener. And so she asked if he would know where the body is. But this raises a very obvious question. Why? Why didn't Mary immediately recognize Jesus when they first started talking? I mean, this is after all, this is what you're after. This is the one that you're looking for. Why didn't Mary immediately recognize Jesus? Well, believe it or not, note this on your outline, not, resur- not recognizing the resurrected Christ is a recurring theme throughout the Gospels. Happens all the time. It's not uncommon for someone to meet the resurrected Christ and to not recognize him immediately. For example, we see this very thing in Luke 24, which is another wonderful uh, uh, resurrection passage where Jesus appears to two disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus and they talk for a while and they even go into one of their houses and they're going to sit down to eat, but they do not recognize Jesus until when? Until, until Jesus opens their eyes to see him for who he is and to recognize him and to behold him in his glory. And this points to a very important reality that we need to understand. Note this on your outline. No one, no one can see Jesus for who, for who he truly is unless he chooses to make himself known. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the King. Jesus is perfectly sovereign over all things, listen, including the knowledge of himself, including the revelation of himself, that he reveals himself in his timing and in his choosing. Jesus, earlier in the Gospels, explained this very thing in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, where Jesus would say, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You say, fine, very good, but why does this matter? Why does John and Luke and Jesus seem to emphasize this truth that it is God who must reveal himself to us? Well, brothers and sisters, this is so important because it helps us to see once again who gets the credit for our salvation, for even our knowledge of Christ. It helps us to see once again our blindness, our need for God's intervening grace. It helps us to see once again how dependent we really are on the Spirit of God to give us life and understanding. And it helps us to see once again how we should pray for our loved ones and for friends and family who don't yet see Jesus for who he really is. This helps us to know how we can pray for them. This should give us courage to pray, yes. It should give us courage to speak, yes. To continually speak of the glory and the goodness of Christ so that God the Spirit in his way and his timing will pull back the veil, will will give sight to the blind, will give understanding to those who presently don't have this understanding that we should pray continually that Christ's glory would be revealed to those who do not yet see. 
So here, now, in John 20, Mary sees. Mary knows that Jesus is alive. Uh, As the text will go on to indicate, she's fallen down before him in, in worship. She is clinging to him, which Jesus will talk about in just a moment. But the point is, her life is forever changed by this moment, by this encounter with the resurrected Christ. Her despair and her sorrow has become joy and peace and worship and purpose in the presence of Christ. And there is incredible purpose now for Mary because Jesus has a mission for her to accomplish. Jesus has work for her to do. Jesus has a message to give her to then go and give and tell to his very brave disciples. Jesus has a message for Mary to go and give to his very courageous disciples, his very godly disciples, his brilliant disciples, his exceptional disciples. No, not even close. Jesus, listen, has a message of hope and grace to go give to his cowardly, hiding, weak, confused disciples. And we really have saved the best for last. Look at verses 17 and 18. Look at what Jesus says to her. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Please note this on your outline. Here, in the midst of the disciples' sin, failure, and weakness, Jesus speaks a message of confident victory, absolute reconciliation, and glorious adoption. Glorious adoption. Now, before we get to the message itself, we should consider the matter of Mary clinging to Jesus. And the fact that Jesus then tells her that you cannot cling to me, says Jesus, because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And then also we should notice that this issue of Jesus ascending to the Father is the very first part of the message that Mary is supposed to communicate to the disciples. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus talk so much about his need to ascend to the Father? Why does Jesus tell Mary, hey, you can't cling to me because I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And by the way, tell the disciples that I am ascending to the Father. So what's going on here? Well, as we put all of this in context, we see, of course, that Jesus is risen. He has conquered sin and death. Mary is thrilled. Obviously, she's clinging to Jesus. But here's the issue. It is not God's plan for Jesus to remain here on earth in bodily form. He must ascend back into heaven. He must go back to his father to be seated in glory. Here's the issue. Jesus must ascend so that he can then send 
his Holy Spirit to live in and indwell and empower his people. Where is Jesus today? He is presently seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. He is praying for us, his people. He is preparing a place for us as he described and talked about in John chapter 14. And Jesus, by his Spirit, is indwelling and working through his people, his bride, his church church and he will soon return. And I love the fact that so many of the songs that we sang this morning emphasized his return, that he is in fact coming again soon. That's what the disciples needed to know. That's what Mary needed to know. That's what we need to know. That's where we now live. So Jesus must ascend. But notice the way that Jesus explains this to Mary and to to the disciples in verse 17. Again, here's the message that Mary is supposed to give on behalf of Jesus. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, first glance, that might not seem like very much. Uh, uh, where's the rest of the message, Jesus? Like, there's got to be more. There's not much here. I mean, is this, is this really the message? It, it might not seem like a lot. It is huge. It is huge. It communicates both our reconciliation to God and our adoption in Christ. Think, think of it like this. What right do we have to call God our Father? What right do we have to make any claim on God saying, my God, my Father. How can Jesus talk like this? How can Jesus give this message to sinful, weak, cowardly, undeserving disciples, people exactly like us? Here is the good news that we celebrate today, that Jesus died and Jesus rose to make this very thing reality, to purchase us, to ransom us, to bring us to God. And how does Jesus bring us to God? He brings us as fully forgiven, fully reconciled, fully loved in Him. The Apostle John would later write about this in 1 John 3, 1, saying, See what kind of love. The Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then he says, and so we are. I mean, what kind of love is this? What kind of redemption is this? This is gracious love. This is freely given love. This is conquering love that God pours out on us in Christ. At the very beginning of John's gospel, all the way back in John chapter 1, verse, verse 12, John explains this truth of adoption. John hints at and begins to tease out this reality of adoption with these simple words saying, but to all who did receive him, that is referring to Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now, here we are in John chapter 20, and here's Jesus announcing to Mary and to the disciples, this is now reality. This is truth. This is fact. That Christ 
makes those who trust in him children of God. Because the fact is, if we are to be adopted, if we are to be reconciled to God, to a holy, pure God, we must be cleansed of our sins. We must be made clean. We must be made righteous. And the good news is, Jesus does these things. This is, this is the thing that Jesus does. Because of his substitutionary death, he cleanses us of our sin by virtue of his perfection and his purity and his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. That is to say, his righteousness is credited to our account when we place our faith and our trust in him. And so by his work, by his merit, by his life, we are given the right of adoption. We are given the gift of eternal life and our future and our eternity and our forever joy is secure in Him. So, the fact is, sin and death will not have the last word on Christ or on anyone who loves Christ, who is in Him, who follows Him, who turns to Him in faith and repentance because of Christ, the power of sin, the dominion of sin, the curse of sin has been forever removed and defeated in Jesus. Several days ago, I ran across something kind of strange. It's an open letter to death. An open letter to death written by a dear sister in Christ named Cindy Matson, And it reads like this. Dear death, I'm writing to you today with a simple message. Stop boasting. I realize that you have some reason for pride. You have had your way with nearly every human to ever live. Do Enoch and Elijah keep you up at night? You have done some of your finest work through wars throughout history. You have claimed the lives of countless millions on the battlefield and in the trenches, from catapults to bayonets, assault rifles, grenades and IEDs. You've never lacked a weapon with which to snuff out the breath of soldiers from every corner of the globe during every century of time. Of course, you haven't limited your work to men in uniform, even during wartime, through the corruption of tyrants and demagogues. You've also managed to terminate millions more innocent victims simply for sport. I'm sure you look back with fondness on the success of Stalin's Great Purge and Hitler's Holocaust. And today, you're undoubtedly giddy with glee at the recent atrocities perpetuated against Ukraine. But your mastery isn't limited to wartime. Some of your greatest work has been done through physical or mental illness, employing cancer, heart disease, strokes, and degenerative disorders such as MS, ALS, and Alzheimer's. You've robbed families of loved ones years, perhaps decades, before they were ready to say goodbye. The list could continue with your masterful use of violence in the streets, abuse of drugs and alcohol, vehicular and machinery accidents, fires, natural disasters, starvation, malnutrition and suicide. Yes, for good reason, you could certainly be called mighty and dreadful, but you're not. You have laughed in derision at taking the lives of an estimated 62 million unborn babies in America. In the last 49 years, the number roughly equals the combined population of two of America's most populous states, California 
and Florida. 62 million souls have slipped into eternity at the hands of their parents who have chosen to end the life of an unborn child, guilty only of the sin of being conceived. Well done, death. You've also done quite a number on the church. Beginning with John the Baptist and Stephen, you've only ratcheted up your work in recent times. The 20th century set a new record for Christian martyrs. In fact, you took the lives of more believers in Christ in those hundred years than in all the past centuries combined. Last year alone, you sent over 4,000 people to the grave merely because they claimed Christ as their Lord. You've ended the lives of countless believers after years of suffering, battles with leukemia, brain cancer, polio, and any other number of physical ailments, thinking that you've gained the upper hand on them by finally allowing the disease to end their lives. You've dusted the dirt off your pants and sat back to consider the fineness of your handiwork. But no greater exploit did you execute than the, crucifi- than the crucifixion of the only true righteous man, the man Christ Jesus. You laughed in ecstasy as the sun went dark that Friday afternoon, long before sunset, as Jesus cried out to his Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, and the earth began to shake. You celebrated. Finally, your victory had been won. The world and all its people would now be yours to rule for all time. O death, do not be proud. Your greatest victory turned out to be your greatest defeat. As the sun rose on the third day, the secure tomb guarded by sentries and stone had given up its one resident. In his place sat an angelic messenger proclaiming the glad tidings. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. From that moment and for all of eternity, your victory has been swallowed up in defeat. You are now the companion of loss, your greatest ally, and the church's greatest enemy, Satan himself, is nothing more than a disarmed combatant. The promise issued thousands of years hence has come to pass. The serpent's weak heel victory lasted but three days. Jesus' head-crushing blow will last forever. Not only do you fight alongside a hopeless comrade, but you fight against saints endowed with resurrection power. The authority that raised Jesus from the grave and wrested victory from your clutches now energizes the saints who call upon the name of the Lord. This power residing in followers of Christ zaps you of your greatest weapon, fear. Men and women siding with King Jesus no longer fear you. They recognize that all you can do is end their life on a sin-cursed planet. You have no power to alter their eternal residency in the new heavens and the new earth. This realization dissolves your scare tactics into juvenile pranks. Resurrection power dwelling within born-again Christian uh, Christ followers also gives them a renewed hope. They no longer pine for perfect earthly bodies. They willingly surrender their perishing vessels of clay to you, knowing that for eternity they will enjoy a glorified body tailor-made for them, a body that will never suffer decay, decline, or disease. With joy and gusto they sing, The body death may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. O death, do not be proud. Your leash is short. 
Your reign is limited. Your defeat is certain. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as as we've considered this morning the reality of sin and death, it is severe. It is grave. The consequences of sin are horrific. As we consider what it means to be separated from you, as we consider what it means to die physically, these are very sobering truths. These are sobering things that we consider. And yet, Father, we gather together today to celebrate your remedy, your answer, your uh, solution that is brought about in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I I pray for everyone in this room here. I pray for those, Lord, who are perhaps watching or listening online. God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to know and to love Christ for who He truly is and for what He has accomplished on our behalf. Father, if there be anyone here today who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Lord, may this be the moment that they cry out to You, that they call upon You and find life and joy in Him. Lord, it, it, would, it would give us no greater joy than to celebrate once again your redeeming work as you unveil the glory of your Son. And Lord, for those who do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Lord, help us to walk and to live according to that great reality. Help us to every day, each day, consider the fact that we love and serve and walk with not a dead Savior, but a living Savior who is coming back again very soon. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.